0: Amen. You know, as Tasha was reading, she didn't begin with, this is Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. She began reading as if this was her testimony. And I think it is. And one of the things I want us to get out of this passage this this morning is I want you to see this. This is not just her song. This is your song. We notice as well, in that passage, as, as, as she read, it was her own testimony. This is what God has done for me, and yet it was also what God does for all those who believe him. Did you catch that transition? This is what God does for all those who trust him. That's for you and I as well. It's not just a song from 2,000 years ago, it's today's song. This is the third Sunday in Advent. And third Sunday in Advent, we focus on joy. And if you notice, if you're paying attention, you saw that the third candle is different than the others. The third candle is pink. And if you dip into church history, there's, there's um, some background to that. And, and some of what I've read suggests it's not really complicated. There isn't a great theological meaning behind it, although along the way, one could certainly be invented. But the deal was this. In the medieval era, where they have this Advent liturgy, but uh, I don't know if it was a new pope that came along, but, but decided, you know, we need to spice that up a little bit. It's getting a little stale. It's getting a little predictable, and church can do that. And we need to do something different. I know what will change it. Let's make, what if we made one of the candles pink? Can you imagine the scandal of the day? They've always been purple, and they're purple because that's the royal color of the coming king, and you want to make one of them girly pink. That must have been a huge scandal in its time. It's something the youth group probably came up with, actually. <laughs> but it reminds me of the old days back in Brush Prairie when the youth group bought a piano and it replaced the old pump organ here at Brush Prairie Church. This is years ago in the pioneer days. Can you imagine the scandal? Anyway, I like to suggest maybe another thought behind this candle being different. This candle is pink and it's the candle of joy and it was it was chosen it was meant to highlight the joy in the midst of the advent season in the midst of things other things even the other candles not quite looking like it yet. Because we grab hold of we lay hold of god's joy for us even when in our surrounding circumstances we don't quite see it yet so you think about one candle joy in the midst of others that don't look quite like it maybe there's something there ah, if you like the you know just liven up the dark advent season a little bit you can go with the historical version as well i like bob's version better Because there's something about joy, even in what we don't yet see. That's really the question behind this passage this morning. Where do you find your joy? Well, around Christmas time, where do you find your joy? I see some of the kids gathered in the room this morning, and uh, a lot of them I know are over at Awana. We we talked about this in the first service as well. For, For kids, where do you find your joy around Christmas time? maybe it's maybe it's gifts under the tree. I know there's there's one gift i'm I'm anticipating being under the tree this season. That'll be fun, I hope. but oh, here's a gift under the tree. you know you you see a box like this, it's wrapped like this, ribbon like that, and you think, "Wow, there's some promise here, right?" What, what, this This might be just what I'm hoping for. This might be everything that I'm imagining this Christmas could be. And I, I open it up and I find, well, the box says, products designed with learning in mind. Well, if you're a kid, that's kind of like getting fruit of the loom for Christmas. I mean, seriously? Hmm. But I open it up and... Imagine my surprise! This could be wonderful if you really only wanted a hippopotamus for Christmas. But if not, it might be a little more of what am I gonna do with that? That's like a lot of Christmas presents, right? Especially seems like the older they get, the more wacky things people give you, and it's like, oh, they're... what am I gonna do with that? Well, I look back to Christmas as a kid, and my hopes and my expectations versus what was actually delivered. We had, in those olden days, we had the Christmas wish book. They were put out by somebody called Sears, and somebody called Montgomery Wards, and it's like, neither of those exist anymore, so I'm obviously dated. And this was back in the day when that special Christmas catalog, the wish book, you didn't have to pay for it and and get credit if you actually ordered something. They sent it to you. They gave it to you because it was the Amazon of the day. And they knew kids were going to pour over that. And we would look through the wish books. And we would write down things we were hoping for and even the page number so that Santa could find it easier. You know, Santa's very busy that time of year. We want to make this easy. And so then we've, we've prepared our list. We've seen the wonderful pictures in the wish book. And it's just now a matter of waiting for Christmas morning. One year, I wanted a drum set. I didn't realize then that parents do not buy their children drum sets. It's, it's, it's grandparents that buy their <laughs> grandchildren drum sets, right? That's how it happens. Okay, I wanted a drum set. I wasn't asking for a lot. I wasn't asking for this whole kid here. was something pretty pretty simple. I wanted a drum set. And there was a big box under the tree that year. And when I opened it, you know what it was? The cascade thumpa drum. Now, there are drums of a sort there, but imagine my disappointment. It didn't quite look like the picture of my expectations, right? Another year, okay, this one's a little easier. I wanted a train set, a train set. And you may have, maybe you, you, you see them on web pages now. I remember what in the, in the wish book then. I wasn't asking for a lot of train set, just a train set that might look like that. Maybe even have a running river. That would be really cool. Well, I did get a train set that year. But the train set, I couldn't find an exact picture of it, but the train set looked a little more like that. Have you been disappointed in what you've hoped for? What you thought would bring you joy, and you found out it was somehow less. It was incomplete, or maybe it was actually empty. Empty. Of what, uh, of what you thought the joy that that thing or that expectation would bring? Where do you find your joy? In this text that's before us this morning in Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at, at Mary. Perhaps the most misunderstood young woman in all of history. Now much has been made of Mary, in fact way too much has been made of Mary. There is this theological idea that has come up that Mary herself was the result of the Immaculate Conception, that that Mary herself was conceived miraculously by God so that she could be the sinless bearer of the Son of God. That Mary had to be sinless in order for, for Jesus. And, and, and there's nothing in Scripture about that. It's an idea of men that, that, that developed over time. M- making Mary much more in God's purpose of redemption than, than God intended for her. But on the other side of that, we want to be careful not to make too little of Mary. Because Mary's a wonderful example for us of an unknown teen girl Think of it, this is the first century. Teen girls were not all over Facebook at the time, Instagram and wherever else they are that I'm not even aware of because I'm too old. But, But no, teen girls are not much heard of in the towns and villages of Judea and Galilee. And Mary is just looking for her life to continue forward and, and, and she's betrothed, she's promised, engaged in our mindset to a, a man, Joseph, and they're going to have a family and live out their days probably in quietness where nobody outside the area even knows who they are. And then there's that visit from the angel that we read about last week. And in the midst of that, and what Mary does with that, and because Mary does one thing, she trusts herself to the Lord. She says, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, let it be to me as you have said. She says, I'll trust myself to God's word, God's promise. And that yielded submission, that faith, that's where Mary finds her joy in the midst of i think hard for us to appreciate circumstances that she's going to endure this 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 song that we're going to see this morning uh, we're going to spend some time working through it's mary's song it's mary's testimony this this is her reply recorded for us in god's word because there's much here that we can learn from. Now, in a lot of your Bibles, it's probably set out differently from the surrounding text of the, of the stories of the first and second chapter of Luke. It's it's indented differently. There's more white space around it for two reasons. First of all, it's poetry, and our Bibles show us poetry in that form, and also because there are many Old Testament quotations and allusions. And these Old Testament quotations, as well as references or echoes of Old Testament passages, those are set out differently. And if you have a Bible with cross-references, there'll be a little tiny... Probably a letter next to a phrase, and the letter is so small you can't really read it. You're going to need your readers on for this. And and, uh, that'll point you in the margin somewhere, maybe in between, at the bottom of the page somewhere, there's this really fine print that has these cross-references, and it's other places, and in this case it's going to be Old Testament, where that phrase came from. It's borrowed from, or it's referring to an Old Testament story. And I'm going to give you an example of that. Oftentimes, when that's done, when there's all these Old Testament references, there's a couple of ideas that we don't want to miss. This is not just something that Mary's feeling today. Mary's praise, Mary's joy is anchored in what God has already said. She is believing that God's word is true. And when she pulls these stories in, when she pulls these previous examples of God, and declarations of God's faithfulness, oftentimes there's a bigger story around that that we're meant to bring back into mind. A very brief mention, for instance, of the Exodus or of God's victory over Egypt is supposed to bring in that whole idea of God's people were enslaved. God saw them. God had mercy on them. God, by his mighty power and his outstretched arm, he brought them out and he destroyed the enemy and he brought them through death into a new life as his own special people with his promises to them. All of that is wrapped up in a simple mention of Passover or Exodus. So we're supposed to get that bigger story. And in this, as we go through and talk a little bit about that, I will not be able to talk about all the references and all the, all the, all the stuff that's packed into the passage. I'd encourage you to chase some of those other cross-references yourself, but we'll point out a couple of them because I want us to learn from Mary. Girl, where do you get your joy? Because her joy and her hope carried her through some difficult stuff for what God had promised, but she didn't see yet in her own circumstances. And we need that too. So where does Mary get her joy? Well, we're introduced to Mary's faith really in the closing words of Elizabeth's statement in verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary is blessed. Why is Mary blessed? How is Mary blessed? What is it that's going to make Mary's future different? It's because she believed what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is he or she who believes what God has said from his word. Blessed is the one who believes that what God has said is what God will do. Let's open with Mary's own declaration, verse 46 and 47. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My my soul lifts and exalts and praises the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's not going to be disappointed. She, she's going to magnify the Lord. She's not looking to somebody else. It's God who has answered her. It's God who has done this. It's God who has, who has lifted her. And so her joy is in the Lord. Her joy, is not in, her, her joy is not even in this wonderful young man, Joseph, for what we know about him. He seems, to, he, he seems a fine gentleman. But that's not where her joy is. Her joy isn't she's going to get married, she's going to have her family. That's not where her joy is. It's not in her circumstances. Her, 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 her confidence and thus her praise is not, is not in Caesar. It's not in Rome, certainly, and the oppression that she experiences. In the midst of that oppression, she magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. There's, there's two things there. First of all, God is Savior. But God is my Savior, which suggests that Mary, yes, even Mary, also Mary, Mary like you, Mary like me, needs God's Savior. And God himself is her Savior. The child she will bear who will be the Savior of the world is Emmanuel, God with us. God himself come in the flesh to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and to die in our place, to bear away our sin in his own body that we might be reconciled, brought back into relationship with God. God, my Savior, that's why I rejoice in him. I rejoice in God. My, my joy starts here. Look what God has done for me. It's not any more complicated than that. In fact, the, the, the passage is going to unfold that. And, and, and what, I, what I pulled out is four statements. Those four statements are this, because God has seen her lowly state, God has seen her need, God has lifted her into a blessed future. God has done great things. God has saved, treasured, has restored her. God has done great and mighty things for her. That, That because of what God has done for her, the present injustices around her cannot spoil her joy. And finally, the fourth move, Mary finds joy in being reminded that God keeps his promises. His promises are long made and forever kept. It may be from a long time ago, and it may seem ancient and old, and it would be out of, out of, out of date. Certainly the terms of service would have expired, but not in God's Word, not in God's promise. Mary is reminded that what God has said, God will do. He keeps His promise. So first of all, God has seen her lowly state. The first quote, and this is the one I want to spend a little time on, in verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And because of that, he's looked on her, he's seen her, but he's done something from what he saw because from now on all generations will call me blessed, Mary says. He looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Now, this phrase is a literal, word-by-word, almost letter-by-letter quotation. It doesn't come across that way in our English Bibles. And... It wouldn't if you compared the Greek New Testament to the Hebrew Old Testament. But when you compare the Greek New Testament to the Greek version of the Old Testament that was used in the first century, the Septuagint it's called, then it's a word-for-word and almost a letter-by-letter exact quotation of what Hannah says in 1 Samuel and chapter 1. Hannah is like Elizabeth, barren, longs for a child and cannot have a child. And she comes to the tabernacle and she's pouring out her soul before God and she's praying. The the priest mistakes her silent prayer with only her her mouth moving, but she's not saying the words out loud. He mistakes her for being drunk and the priest rebukes her, but God hears her. God hears her. God looked upon the humble state, the neediness of this woman, Hannah. Insignificant in the history of Israel, up until the point she becomes the mother of Samuel. And Samuel is the last of the judges, and it's a good thing. Because the judges are a mess. Have you read through the book of Judges? Have you seen what's going on in that book? The judges are a mess. I mean, Israel from Joshua goes off a cliff into judges. Israel doesn't defeat the Canaanites. Israel becomes the Canaanites. The judges are a mess. Samuel is the turning point. Samuel is the righteous judge, the judge who believes God's promise, and the judge who points Israel to God's king, David. And not merely that David whom you read about in Samuel, but the greater David, the son of David, who would come. That's who Samuel points to. Things are different in Israel because Samuel comes through Hannah in the same way God has looked. There's something in that image that God has not only looked upon Mary as he looked upon Hannah before, but God has looked upon the needs of his people. God has looked upon the needs of humanity. And God has seen our barrenness. God has seen our helplessness. And God has done for us that which will change everything, so that from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You say, as a Christian today, (laughs) maybe they do, maybe they don't. Maybe they call you blessed. Maybe they respect you for your faith. Maybe they mock you because of it. Really, is this true? That that phrase, from now on, Luke likes that one. He uses it again. He uses it a, several more times. I grabbed a couple of them. Luke chapter 5 and verse 10, where Jesus meets a couple of fishermen and he says, from now on, you will catch men. Jesus uses it concerning himself while he's under arrest, while he is is restrained, while he is being beaten and mocked. And he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and majesty. And we will. Because that is exactly where he was raised and is ascended to. Reality is... Change. It is different from what is currently seen. In John chapter 8, John picks it up too in that encounter with the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you from now on. Go and sin no more. Everything from the past has been changed and made new and different. So that Paul picks it up in 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on, we don't know anybody after the flesh. We know no person after our mere human mortality. But we know one another according to what God has said, who you are as an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. From now on, your future is different. From now on, in faith in Jesus, your future is glorious. And even like these candles, you don't see it yet. You're surrounded by circumstances that still look the same. But from now on, for you, your future is different. Mary has joy because God has seen her lowly state. God has seen her need and God has lifted her to a blessed future. Because God has done great things. God has done great things for her. Look at, verse, look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Holy is his name basically means there is none other like him. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, not just to her, but into the future as well. That's how it came to her. The promises that God made in the past have come to Mary as well, and they extend from Mary to us also. We share in the same blessing, believing in the same Savior who has saved, who has lifted, who treasures us, who who restores us. And the prophet Zechariah says, The Lord your God is in your midst, Emmanuel, God with us, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you and calm you by his love. In the midst of your stress, in the midst of your anxiety, he will calm you and quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. You thought, we sing to God. Did you realize that God sings over you? That he so joys and rejoices over you that he sings songs over you. In fact, I would suggest in fact, there is no mandate that can stop God singing. Okay? I would suggest that we sing to God because God sings over us. He loves us, he treasures us, he restores us. This is different. There are many things that we can we can have confidence in. We look for other sources of our deliverance and of our provision. In fact, politics today has become very messy. It's become very passionate, hasn't it? There's a certain end of either spectrum, in fact, that politics has become their religion. This is where their hope is. This is where their faith is. God has been pushed out of the public square, sidelined to the margins, and there is something else that people look to and put their confidence in, put their hope for a better future in. And if that is political leadership, if that is government, well, that was true in the first century, that Rome is our future. Caesar is our provider and our security. Caesar is where we ought to find our safety. We need to do what Caesar says, and that will be best for us. And so what we will do, we will even build temples to Rome, to the whole system, and we will build temples to Caesar. Because that is where our confidence is. And that confidence can easily reside even in a powerful government which will provide for us and promise to keep us safe, to keep us secure, not only from from invading armies, but also from the unseen dangers even of a virus that threatens our vulnerable human mortality. And yet... The government cannot keep us safe. The government cannot keep my life. It doesn't have the resources to do that. Governor, government cannot provide for me and lift me. Well, oh, wait a minute, maybe it can. Maybe, maybe, maybe government, human government can give something to me and can lift me, but only if it disadvantages or takes from somebody else in order to do that. Why? Why? Because our collective human governments have no resources of their own other than what we contribute or what they take from us. A government simply will assign from here to move it over there. Government doesn't have any resources of its own to save, to deliver, to, to lift, to transform. My confidence isn't there. Now, my God, on the other hand, my God has resources. My God, in fact, made humanity out of the very dust of the earth. And you know what else? God made that dirt. God spoke that dirt into existence, didn't he? And then he made us out of it. God needs no other resources. God doesn't need us to contribute anything into the process for the good of the greater whole. In fact, God gave himself into it for us. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of the gospel. The mighty one. There is a mighty one and he has done great things for me. See, Mary's saying this in the midst of a very strong government that promises much and intends to deliver to the best of their ability and nobody shall get in their way. That's that's Mary's environment. And yet her hope and her confidence and because of that her joy is found somewhere else. Her joy is found in the mighty one who has done, who will, who will save, who, who rejoices over me. We can say that our government, your, your government really doesn't treasure you, folks. I don't know where, where your political passions are, but your government doesn't treasure you. Your government probably treasuries you. Your God treasures you. He rejoices over you. He gave his own son you. There's joy. I do not mean to sound like an anti-government. I, I, I am grateful for our whole system of government, folks. Um, but that is not where my confidence is. My confidence is our mighty God who loves us and has saved us and has set before us a glorious future even though we don't yet see it yet. Joel 2, fear not, O, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things, great things that Joel's audience didn't yet see, and yet God has done it. We don't yet see it. We can settle into Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 here. Look at all that God has done for us in Jesus. And we don't see the fullness of it yet. But blessed is the one who believes that what God has said, that God will do. That's where our joy is found. And in light of that, the present injustices cannot spoil the joy of God's promised future. Verse 52. Look at verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Often in human societies, one or another, around the world, this this has been true all through history... The elite, those who have status and power, will take advantage of the powerless. One of the, one of the beauties of our system of government is it has tried to limit that, to prevent that from happening. A leveling, um, a, a governing with the consent of the governed, and so on. It's a wonderful system and concept. But this is normal in Humanity. The elite with status and power take advantage. Job 5, however, says that God sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety that God will lift you. Psalm 107, he pours contempt on princes and he makes them wander in trackless wastes but he raises the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. I hear something of the Exodus in that poetry. Ezekiel 21, I love this one. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban Take off the crown. Things will not remain as they are. Isn't that good news? Humble yourselves. Take off the turban. Remove the crown. Things will not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. And so Peter says, Peter grabs hold of that same thought, and Peter says to us in chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you. He will exalt you in due time. Oh, you don't see it yet. People around you don't see it yet, but that doesn't mean it's not true because what God has promised, that God will do. Blessed is he or she who believes in what was spoken to her or you from the Lord. What God has said, he will do. You know, In verse 53, it says, He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. It's not that God has any prejudice against the rich. It's not that God doesn't like rich people or wealthy people or leaders or rulers or any of that, except those who might gain their their wealth and their advantage over others unjustly. But our own resources or riches, our own resources can get us, get in our way of seeing our need for God's good, for God's eternal treasure, that treasure that cannot rust, or, or cannot rot, cannot rust, or, or cannot be eaten away by moths, as Jesus described. How hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because rich people can't go, but because rich people often don't see the need of God's help, God's grace. God's mercy, because we have our own resources sorted of out. Our own resources sorted out. Psalm 107, verse 9. He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Jesus paralleled that in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, didn't he? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What's it say? For they shall be filled. What does that suggest? They're pink candles. say, what? Boy, Bob, you just jumped. No, no, they're, they're pink candles. They are in the midst of circumstances that surround them that don't feel like that yet. They don't see it yet, but it's true. Mary doesn't see it yet, but it's true. You and I, child of the king, heir of glory, you don't see it yet, but it's true. Look what God has done for you. There is where you find your joy. Your joy is in your identity, but not that identity that we will craft and master and put online and and try to get others to think about us. Our identity is not what anybody else thinks about me. It's what God has said about you. That's who you are. That is your identity. And all generations will call call you blessed because God will lift you. God will say, no, 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 this one is mine. And yet it's not an exclusive club. There's somebody else around you that God will also say, and this one too, this one too is mine. There's somebody around you that you're going to be with this Christmas that Mary's story needs to be their story. They too are to be his. And God would use you or I to tell them. You know, Mary finds joy and be reminded that God keeps his Promise. Look at verses 54 and 55. These are, these are promise. These are covenant references. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy. The remembrance of his mercy is that which he promised, and God sees it through. God remembers to do that which he said as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You had know, all begin in the garden, and it didn't take long for humanity to wander their own way there. And yet immediately, God provides a covering for their shame, and God provides for them a promise. In the woman's seed, there will be one who will crush the serpent's head. And that promise of a seed stretches through Noah into chapter 12, where Abraham is called out. And Abraham is told, In you. And in your descendant, in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Not merely Israel as a nation. Israel is going to be lifted up to to point the way to Messiah for all of us. And in that promise to Abraham that God has remembered. That God keeps his covenant. You've been hurt, maybe by somebody that hasn't kept their covenant. Hasn't kept their word. If you live long in the world, you've had that impact you in one way or another. Family, friends, work, somewhere, somebody has not kept their word, but God does. He remembers, he doesn't forget, and he, God, does what God has said. Mary finds joy in that. Look how the book of Micah Picks up on this theme of God's faithfulness to his covenant. The book of Micah, the prophet Micah. Micah is the one Micah Micah's the one, who, Micah's the one who, who, who points out that it's lowly Bethlehem, out of lowly Bethlehem, that's where is going to come forth from you. The of you, the least of the villages, is going to come from, forth from you, one who is from old, from everlasting. And that one is going to be great. He is going to be the deliverance. In him will be our peace. The Bethlehem promise. It's in Micah. Chapter 5 and chapter 7, you know how the book of Micah closes? Micah closes on this line. You, God, will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. What God has said, God is going to do. And we are not merely following the example of Mary's faith here. We are following, like Mary, the example of Jesus' faith. Remember Hebrews chapter 12? That Jesus, Jesus himself, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Jesus went to the cross for us because he believed God's promise of what this would do for us that he would be exalted, but not merely that, we in him. And his joy was, according to Hebrews, in bringing many heirs to glory. That's you and I. So we are following even the example of our Lord Jesus who went before us, who trusted that what God said, God was going to do, and he did it with him, he'll do it with you. Do you want more joy? Do you want that kind of joy, that kind of confident hope in God's changing everything future, even though you don't see it yet? You will not find that under the tree. You will not find that in the midst of the wrapping paper on Christmas morning. If you want more of God's joy, you will find it in what it is that our God has done for you in calling you into his glorious future. Spend time rehearsing God's promise. Let this Christmas time be a time when we remember what it is not only that God has done, but what God has said and what God has promised for us in his future because of what he's done for us. Drink in the explicit truth of New Testament letters where you are told particularly what God has done for you. Linger in the presence of Jesus in the Gospels. Seeing who he is for you as described there so that we could know him. Soak in the Old Testament realities of God's overcoming grace in the midst of overwhelming failure and loss. And yet God is able to lift and restore because he treasures you. Our joy will not be found in any circumstances that we can fashion that'll be good enough. If I can only have this, it'll be good enough. If we can only get through this in this way, it'll be good enough. That's all I ask. Lord, I don't ask much because I don't think God wants to give me much. So I'm just going to, God, I just want, our joy will not be found in God. Could you just Our joy will be found in believing God for his abundant, overwhelming, more than we could ask or even imagine, grace and how he has lifted and restored us in his son Jesus. Grab hold of that, and you will have joy that overflows out of you and others in ways that they will ask you to explain this hope that is in you. That's what we want to see happen this Christmas. Mary remained there, it says in verse 56, about three months and went to her own house. In this joy, Mary can devote herself to serving somebody else. And yet she can also face the coming opposition of others in unbelief. She she is going to go home and she's going to face the mocking of others who, who can hardly believe her incredible story. And yet she believes that blessed is she who believes that there will be a fulfillment of what? was spoken to you from the Lord. Blessed is the one who believes that what God has said, that's what God will do. God's joy is for those who believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that, that, that this is temporary and there is God's glorious eternity ahead of us? Do you believe that God sent His Son, Jesus, into our humanity, into this world, to die in our place, that by believing in him, you can have everlasting life and the privilege in his presence forever. Not yet seeing it, but believing it. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of today, we do in... Dare to, in fact, we delight to, joy in your promise. Father, we do believe you that what you have said is what you will do. Father, we think of Mary, a humble and really we'd never know of her except for what you chose to do for her. Father, would that be true of us? Would that be true of somebody around us who maybe doesn't think much of themselves, but Lord, you think much of them. Father, would that hope, that joy you give us in this season, Lord, make a way that it could flow from us to them, that they could also believe that what you said that you will do for them. Lord, use us that way. Let that be our Christmas gift. Let that be our joy above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.